Welcome to the Privateer Podcast, an educational and informational podcast brought to you by the folks at Privateer Rum. I'm Maggie Campbell. I'm the president and head distiller at Privateer. And today I'm chatting with Steve Bayshore from Mount Vernon about making rum in a colonial era distillery setup with wood fire stills and everything that comes along with that. Cheers and enjoy. All right, guys, we've got Steve with me today. I'm so excited for those of you who don't know him in the distilling community to get to know him. Um, And for people who do know him, you know what a pleasure it is to always get to share some time. Um, One of my favorite, most kind, smartest, most laid back, yet very whip smart people to talk to. I love it. Um, You know, my husband is famously antisocial as a distiller and he adores you, loves spending time with you. So I want to welcome you to the show. And for folks who don't know you, would you talk about your background, what it is you do? Because I think it's probably one of the most special experiences in the distilling world right now. Well, thank you. And it's, uh, you're, I appreciate the kind words. I probably don't uh, deserve all of them, but it's very kind of you. And uh, when you came down with your husband, we had a great chat, he and I, about agriculture and also music because I know he's very much a great guitar player so uh but uh yeah my background is really in the history trade and I got a history degree many years ago uh focused more on European history actually than American history and also took a lot of literature in English um so I love the written word but uh after college I got involved uh, at a historic site and you know because I initially thought I'd teach perhaps but realized the classroom maybe wasn't the best venue for me. And I got into public history and I got a job with a county park system and eventually ended up on the staff of a water powered mill by giving tours. And um, that was a new exciting time for me and the miller there uh, liked me enough to, to train me how to run the mill. And it's hard to believe it's been over two decades since all that happened. Uh, but I ran that water mill for three or four years and then went on to another historic property in Virginia. And uh, Virginia is certainly the state, you know, if you're into history, it's one of the states that has so much of a rich, varied culture and and historic sites to go visit. And I worked at that other mill at Stratford Plantation in Tidewater, Virginia for about 10 years. And I did other stuff there too. I I gave tours of the the house, which is an 18th century mansion and variety of other, other things. And and, but really at Stratford's where I became what I would call more of a professional miller and learned how to do grain properly and handle grain and make food grade product. And then about 13 years ago, I was fortunate enough to get the opportunity to come up back to Northern Virginia where I spent a lot of my youth growing up and work at Mount Vernon. So for the last 13 years, I've been in charge of the historic trades department, which encompasses the, the farm at Mount Vernon, the blacksmith shop, And my favorite of our sites is, as you know, the distillery and the gristmill site. And I manage a team of people with varied skill sets and various trade and textiles to blacksmithing, to foodways, to milling, distilling. And um, it's just a great group of people. And we tell that part of the story of the estate, those who lived and worked on the estate and how it functioned in the 18th century. And of course, along the way, we get to play like we joke with, with some nice toys, which is a nice water-powered mill and a 18th century reconstructed distillery, which I, you've, you've been in and worked with us. So it's been a, a nice 
uh, career path, particularly getting deeper into spirits production, which I've grown to love very much. Yeah, and you have a lot of natural talent and understanding um, that, you know, oftentimes people, I, I find that people who kind of come to it through this sort of route that you have where you're, you're passionate about life and life takes you to distilling, sometimes like the universe has figured it out, <laughs> as opposed to maybe someone who's like, I'm going to be the greatest distiller that can be, you know, very challenging. And you've got this natural mindset, this respect for history, your milling gives you such a respect for process, quality ingredients, connection to the land, flavor, and where that product is going as far as maturity. Because obviously when you're milling grains, um, like you are at the George Washington mill, um, you know, you're thinking about where is this corn coming from? Who are we milling it from and what will they make with it? Um, and especially those traditional unadulterated historic flavors is such a big part of it um, for you as well. So yeah, and all of your passion about mills, you, my husband was like, wait, you're telling me I could have been a millwright? This could have been my career? Why didn't I know this? I love mills. This is amazing. It, it was totally how some people feel when they meet us as distillers. And they're like, wait, I could have been a distiller? It was very, very, very cute. Um, and I think that, you know, in how we met, I think the first time you and I actually, like, talked one-on-one -on -one was probably the first time I visited the mill. Is that your memory? I think so. I think it was, and I can't remember the year. It was, uh, it was a couple years ago. I was there on Capitol Hill talking about distillers and federal excise tax and modernizing the liquor laws and taking meetings with people um, on Capitol Hill. Uh, and I think that I popped over very briefly and I couldn't take the full tour, but you stopped to, uh, to fire up the grain mill, which for people who don't know, I mean, this is like multiple stories. Is it three, four stories? It's four stories with a loft. Well. <laughs> four, four stories tall with a loft, uh, historically accurate water wheel run grain mill. And like, you fire that thing up and the whole building is just, it comes completely alive. It's, it's like jiggling all around you. Uh, and you're watching these grains get, get milled. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, but it's pretty incredible. As someone who loves historic food, I like to grow my own grains. I like to use my little, you know, mock mill um, and make my own bread from scratch. Like this was otherworldly to see. Um, so amazing. And the fact that you guys use some of those grains for your fermentations and your distillings is also incredible. I also got to have some when we were staying on Mount Vernon um, at the restaurant as well. Uh, yeah. So that was really, really cool. So I think that is one of the earlier times we met. And then I think like we had crossed paths at the American Craft Spirits Association. And like you said, uh, probably the spirits, tastings, et cetera. Um, and I was always very excited to meet you. I was always like, oh, he's really cool. Like I was like kind of like rock starring out in the corner because uh, you had worked with one of my professors, Dave Pickerell, um, right. on right. some stuff. And he had spoken so highly of you. Um, so that was sort of back in the early days when you, you sort of brought this distillery from construction to life. Is that correct? Yeah, I kind of got in on the ground floor and, and, and reflecting back, I do remember that day you came by the mill and I did, we visited just shortly, but then yeah, as we know, the 
times we see each other is increased more with ACSA activity, which is fun. And it's a great group of people. And uh, usually you're very busy during those times I see you though, because of you're running the judgings usually. And, uh, but yeah, I do remember that first time in the mill. And I remember, you know, in 2007, when I came to Mount Vernon, the distillery was just being, the reconstruction was just being finished after six seasons of archeology span because the original distillery had burnt down in 1814. So Mount Vernon took off on an archeological dig. It was very, very intensive and discovered so many things about the building. And then in 2003, before I worked there, they actually brought a group of distillers together on a still made by Vendome, which is now in our gallery in the Distillery Museum, uh, and did some distillations outside by the mill, by the creek. And Dave Pickerell was there and Jimmy Russell was there um chris morris um you know i don't want to admit, leave anybody out joe dangler various others uh, mike sherman was there and those were to do test runs and also create small batches which were helped for fundraise for the, the restoration of the distillery so i've seen all those photos it's one of those things i wish i was there when that happened uh but i really got in in 2007 when we opened and dave came and jimmy russell and the same cast of distillers and we we made one small barrel filled one small barrel for the opening. And at that time, we never thought we would really get deeper into it. Our, our uh, head guy there, our executive director, Jim Reese at the time, he was an educator and he really didn't want us to run that distillery really hard. And then we made a decision in 2009 to try to do a small run. And Dave Pickerel had left Makers at that time and the craft, as you know so well, the craft boom was taking off even more and Dave became a consultant to many different craft operations. And we asked him if he'd come help us, and he did. And it was uh, you know, eye-opening to work with him and all that we learned in those early runs. I always say in 2009, we, we set 12 fermenters and we about killed ourselves. <laughs> because these, as you know, they're, they're hand rode. You know? uh, it's brutal, it's, it's intense. I remember stirring one of your whiskey wash barrels when I visited once and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was like the La Brea Tar Pits. It was very very big workout. And and Dave kind of led us through some of those procedures, and and he was learning along the way too, which I think he enjoyed. Um, but all those early years, we look back with fondly, you know, because you know back then one of my other jokes on site is, you know, in the early days we were just glad stuff was flowing out the back of the still, you know, mm -hmm. and now we've come a long way, which we can talk about where we are today at some point. But we've we've come through each year learning and working with different people and gotten down the road with our process and which we can talk in detail about if you want, but I'm just so happy and proud of the work that's come out of the distillery with a whole lot of help. You know, I always say if it wasn't for the master distillers that came, the people that come now and help us like when you came, uh, it, we wouldn't be where we are uh, because most of my team are historians. I've got three or four people that are excellent process people you know, and, and some that have been on most of the runs, so they really know how to run wood-fired stills now. And it's a unique bunch of people. Um, we have a sign in our office that says, uh, just remember, we're, we're just one big, happy, uh, well-balanced family, which is <laughs> so far from the truth. We're, you know, because living history type people are eclectic. You know, we've got people that have various interests and abilities, but somehow, you know, we all meet on the grounds at Mount Vernon and make this stuff happen. Um, so those early years were very interesting and I think it's grown from there and but the main thing is is you know what we've learned about process what we've learned about 
looking back into the 1790s and, and you know once you do something physically in any environment when you go back and look at early records you understand it better and that's been another interesting thing to research other distilling books and milling books from the 18th century or 19th century based on what we've learned from actually doing the process their way so yeah. um, I mean, it was huge for me. I, you know, I've read a lot about how on, you know, single run or double run, you know, very inefficient fire run pot stills, how you can blend the heads and the tails back in to change the proof. Well, that's not really what's happening, but I'd read it a million times. Um, but seeing it there where you take this series of heads cuts and as those cuts get closer to the heart, sort of making judicious decisions about what to include and what not to and blending them back in to balance out the new make. I'm like, oh, this is what I've read about a hundred times, but of course it's not actually how it was written. It's, it's different. Um, and that was really eye-opening for me. I'll never forget um, getting there super early in the morning um, and kind of looking around and being like, so, uh, so how do we get the, the fermentation into the still? Because <laughs> there's like the barrels on their side uh, without, um, you know, uh, an end on them. And that's the fermenter. And then, you know, many paces away up a ladder is the top of the still where we're pouring it in. And I'm like, you, do you have a pump for this? <laughs> and I remember you handing me a bucket and being like, Oh, like it just hadn't even like crossed my mind. You would hand bucket the fermentation into the still. It was fantastic. I loved it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's the bucket brigade. You know, you feel like you're an 18th century fireman or something. It's so cool. It's so cool. It does feel so communal. It feels so cooperative. You're all kind of in it together. You're like you said, like building a wood fire for a still, like building a fire is already an art that I'm super into, but like building it to distill is another thing and tending that fire properly um, to ensure you're running the right energy at the right rate to get what you want out the other side of the still is a, like a whole art form. Um, scattering the hot coals where you want them to, you know, be working and, and moving them off center and moving them back to center and kind of doing that art form was really lovely. And just the smell of you know, dry wood smoke and cinch molasses, and it was just so lovely. Um, but yeah, so much physical work. Um, and it, it felt really amazing for me, having read so much about, you know, rum in the young American colonies, how it's made to actually be like, oh, this is pretty damn close to what would be happening. Um, yeah, I think so. I think, and from your reading, as you probably are deeper into those rum histories than I, but I've read a little bit. And then one of the big differences is from what I've read, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the size of the rum stills in the 18th century dwarf whiskey stills. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, 10,000 gallon stills, stuff like that I've read about. Um, yeah. And then you can think of the amount of vats to ferment on these east coast distilleries because they were all along the coast because those raw materials coming in from the caribbean um one of the guys who used to work for me he's a professor now he's a it's hard to believe that's how old i am he's a professor now <laughs> yeah he was an intern years ago but he did his thesis on 18th century rum and he identified close to 150 rum distilleries in the colonial period 
between New England and the Carolinas. Yeah. And that's pretty astounding. Um, and there was one in Alexandria, Virginia, right near Mount Vernon. So we know Washington bought rum there for rations and incentive pay and, and various needs on the, on the estate. So that was certainly, a, would have been a large, large building down in Alexandria, that size of rum distillery. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, you know, definitely at Washington's distillery, his emphasis was, was whiskey. Um, yep. Yeah, so that was sort of his his due, um, and there are no records of them making rum there, correct? There are not. Um, are although there are in the ledger some molasses purchases, which actually Lisa Wicker, our good friend, noticed them before I did, and they're not massive, but they're bigger than normal. Um, for an estate like that, it makes me wonder. Or it could have been even molasses-based beer that we know that they made here. Yeah. So, but but yeah, it was it was it was a whiskey brandy operation, and even earlier than the big distillery that he built in the late 1790s, Washington, like any farmer, bought some stills in the late 1750s, early 1760s, and so I have a feeling they were distilling a little bit of grain and probably a little bit of brandy, as any landowner would back in that time period. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely, like you said, a very important part for most, for a lot of landowners was to be distilling and selling distillate. Um, it was just a huge part of the agricultural trade. And uh, and yeah, I, uh, I think what, like you guys have done such a beautiful job of, of having such a unique sort of living history. You know, how many acres is, is Mount Vernon? It's big. Well, today we own in total, some of the areas of which are behind the scenes where we have obvious maintenance and other shops is about 546 acres. Um, the visitors see about 130 on the main estate and then we have about nine acres around the mill and distillery, which is, if you haven't been to Mount Vernon, the mill and distillery are three miles from the main estate, but their reconstructions built on their original foundations. And in the 18th century, all that land was Washington's. His, Mount Vernon in the 18th century totaled 8,000 acres. Wow. And so there were four farms and where the mill and distillery are is a remnant of one of those outlying farms where a lot of the agriculture was done. And, and the reason the mill and the industry was there was there was a creek there on that particular farm that allowed him to build a mill dam and a pond in order to get water to run a water wheel. So that farm, I often refer to it as Washington's industrial farm because all the other farms had had dwellings and, and barns and, and, and structures of agriculture that were needed, but that particular farm, Doe Run, it was called, had the mill, had a cooperage, had the sixth, original 16-sided treading barn, which is an interesting story. Um, and then later, of course, the big distillery was built there, but um, you know, it's, it's quite an expanse and now it's a little bit of suburbia there, you know, all around us, as you, you've driven back and forth. and I. You know, being a history geek, I wonder how many people, because everybody thinks differently, probably a lot of people drive by there and don't even think they're driving down the middle of one of Washington's farms. Um, oh, but, I'm sure. I mean, it was, I was, I was looking for it, looking for it. It's all tucked away. I'm like, Andrew, turn. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of course, uh, Andrew Cabot, our CEO, came up with us, um, which was, yeah, was awesome. Great to meet him. Yeah, I enjoyed talking with him. Oh, you like made his, his history buff 
uh, heart so happy. Um, <laughs> he was so into it. And, and I really love the way you guys interact with the history. You know, so often in rum, I get asked about, you know, colonialism and slavery and being there with you guys. I know we did some video interviews and some talks and it was so refreshing to just be with people who are like, yes, this is the history. This is the reality around it. It is a thing. Let's address it and just be honest and clear. And it was so easy to talk about, you know, the history of the enslaved uh, people working there in the distillery and what their lives might have been like and, and, you know, everything that went on there and sort of some of the art they created and the technology they worked with. And it was so refreshing for me. Um, it's such a rare experience I have where people are comfortable addressing it and talking about it. And that was really pleasant um, and just made life easy to be like, oh yeah, absolutely. Of course we deal with that. Um, and the other really interesting thing about being there was, you know, we were really fortunate that you were able to um, allow us to stay. Uh, you guys call it uh, in quarters, right? Yeah. In the yes. Yeah. So that was so cool to get to stay on Mount Vernon. Um, such a unique experience. So we got to stay there um, among other people who work there. And, you know, we had heard the legend of Martha Washington and how she was one of the best Martha Washingtons. Um, she was kind of famous as a Martha Washington impersonator and she liked to listen to Jeopardy loud. And we had heard all the stories about like, oh, we hope you meet Martha Washington. And on our last night, we were walking back from dinner uh, that we were eating there on Mount Vernon. Um, and there she was unloading her SUV in her full regalia. And I was like, yes, Martha. <laughs> Yeah, we have to give a little background on that because it's an interesting story because the lady's name is Mary Wiseman and Mary is a lady who worked at Colonial Williamsburg for a long time and actually helped launch, was the prime mover of their character interpreter program. So the tours I give, I'm not portraying a character. I, I, it's called third person interpretation. I'm in period clothes, but I know what year it is. And, and I live it in modern times telling the story uh, in a conversational way, but Mary character interpreters portray a character and they usually don't break character when they're out on site. And so these are incredible talented people. And Mary came to Mount Vernon many years ago and proposed uh, developing the program there and said, I want to bring Martha Washington back. And she has done it for many years and she's fantastic, but it is interesting to see Martha unloading her car or uh, you know, because, you know, she's just done her shift and was heading into her room in quarters. And her room in quarters is one of the only ones that has a television. And so that's what you're referring to, that she sometimes plays out a little loud in the evenings if you're staying in quarters. But she's a wonderful lady, and so is the gentleman that plays uh, George Washington for us, Dean Melissa. And Dean is actually retiring from that role uh, this next year. He's still going to do it on other locations, but he's done it a lot of years. And we have a new George Washington, the gentleman who's an actor, coming on board here next year. Um, and that happens from time to time. You know, you can imagine portraying that role so many years, eventually you have to step away. Uh, but they're both fantastic people. And, um, but it is interesting because Mary will go out and eat at restaurants in her Martha Washington getup. Oh so. yeah, no, she did not break character. She was dedicated <laughs> and I was very into it, which I kind of have like, some people are scared of clowns. I can be a little weary of, of period piece actors, which living in Massachusetts is not easy. 
Um, they like walk up to me and start interacting like it's old timeies and I get a little uncomfortable. Uh, well, <laughs> and so, well, well, there's, there's kind of three groups of people that do a reenacting and, and the joke is, this is just a joke, but one or one third are very good and know their history. One third in the middle, just like the experience. And when the crowds are gone, they all hang around the campfire and have a good time, maybe an adult beverage. And then there's the one third you kind of have to watch out for. <laughs> and, uh, you know. I've run into them because I used to do a little bit of Civil War reenacting long ago when I worked at my first mill. We would do a couple of events where we blacksmithed, actually. And sometimes at, around the campfire at night, you run into the one third that you really wish you hadn't run into, but they're there. They're there. And then you meet other great people who are so solid, you know. Yeah. Martha impressed me. I felt very blessed to see and meet Martha very like okay and I saw her unload her SUV into like a little wire basket with wheels and I was like this is I have now experienced Mount Vernon <laughs> yeah well it's sometimes at museums and stuff it's a little bit like a Wizard of Oz where you know pay no attention to the man behind the curtain because to make to pull off all that we do there's stuff that we do hide away behind the scenes uh in these buildings or when after hours you know and that's kind of the fun part of being on the inside um you know, you bump into somebody like, well, well, uh, the guy that plays George Washington is from Philly. And he told me his first year doing it, he used to ride the train down and he'd be in full military regalia with a sword reading the newspaper. <laughs> and people thought he was going, just got out of the mental institution. He said, no one talked to me. <laughs> so, um, oh, that's amazing. It's amazing. One of our, um, our favorite locals, Sean, shout out Sean from, uh, He's sort of a guy from one of our favorite local spots. He does his, he teaches history. He also does some historical reenactment and, you know, he's, we would swing by to have beers at his restaurant and we gave him a bottle of rum and he was so excited and he started going into all the history and we mentioned Mount Vernon and he is in one of the reenacting videos you guys show <laughs> at Mount Vernon. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is like the world's tiniest. Yeah. world. Well, it's a small circle of people. As you know, with, with the distilling, the craft distilling world, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. Because uh, we, you know, but we're all like-minded. We all get off on the same things. And, and so, you know, met a lot of people over the years at Mount Vernon. And I always say that what I love about the place is that Mount Vernon brings people together. You know, there's a love of history or there's a love of the milling or the certain aspects of history or, or whatever we're teaching about. Educators come from all over the country. You know, we do a lot of outreach into the classroom. And during COVID, we've done a lot of outreach online into classrooms through, through live type streams. So that's the fun part. We get connected to many people and we all get connected to the past and, and educate people. So that's really the main mission of Mount Vernon is education and preservation. And uh, we're lucky to have voluminous records in, in the estate itself. But with technology, we've been able to reach into a lot of classrooms not just the last year, but over the years that I've been there as, you know, our use of technology has grown. It's, it's a way to get into classrooms for kids that may never be able to make a trip out East. Um, and so sometimes they're the guys playing character interpreters will go to classrooms via the web and, and occasionally they make trips out West or into other parts of the United States where they do programming. So, you know, it's a, it's been, it's a great organization that, that, that really tries to, reach out in various ways to, to teach. That's the bottom line. Yeah, it really is incredible. And just, yeah, and everyone is so passionate. And like you said, it's a collection of characters who are just really, really dedicated. I 
absolutely adored the time I got to spend with everyone there. And, you know, it was, yeah, you start really early and, you know, you're bucketing the, the wash into the stills one after another in a big line. And then you dump your bucket and you get on the back of the line and you go again and again and step up the ladder and stand on your tippy toes and pour it in. And then you start kind of firing off the stills one by one as they start to get filled up. And it's like this decadent delicious wood smoke the mill that's bringing in the water for the condensers is just incredible um i'm sure i'll post some videos i took <clears throat> during all of this um onto instagram when i post this but yeah i mean it's just so traditional all the pieces all the parts everything that's there um you're building this fire up under this copper still there's water being brought in um you know through this system into the wood. They're like little like wood, like galleys type things, little uh, sort of diverting liquid down into the condensers, yeah. which is amazing. Um, and then, yeah, you're running the stills and running them nice and slow and nice and even. They all have adorable names. Uh, there's even a Maggie, which felt very special. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> uh, that was one of those early long nights with Dave Pickerel there in, you know, late at night we happened to be listening to Mr. Rod Stewart and uh so that that still got christened Maggie May so oh that's adorable yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it has a purpose too because when we when we collect distill it off the back when we're into the hearts you know we bring it to a table we proof it every so often and then segregate into different tanks and so we want to know how each still's doing right so that so each one has a name and uh They've changed a little over the years. Uh, we've renamed a couple, but uh, all of them has a neat story. And, um, and each one runs different, as you know. I mean, the two by the main door sometimes run different because the outside temperature is really coming in that door and affects those two pot stills. Um, the big still on the end that we call Helen, she's not really good on anything but mash. Yeah. So when we get down to doubling, we're using the other four stills. And then we have the, the queens on the end, Elizabeth and, and Anne, the twins who are share one chimney. And those two run in a pretty good cycle, uh, you know, but again, ambient temperature, what's going on outside, the building's not climate controlled, all these factors affect us. Um, and then of course, every, you know, as we're doing mash, we fill those stills. And as you know, we fire the boiler up again. And each day we set three of those 120 gallon fermentations. And that's a bucket brigade too of hot water grains and then rolling the mash with the mash rakes. So um, we've gotten a lot better at it. As I mentioned earlier, the first time 12 of them about killed us, the most we've ever, <laughs> we've ever set was when we did bourbon in 2018, working with Lisa Wicker and we set 54 fermenters. Wow. And so that was, a, you know, looking back, you're like, I'm glad we, we put in a lot of barrels back, but 54 is a lot to do. That's brutal, but big ups to Lisa. I know we both adore her, admire her, love her. She is such a, un, I feel like she's an unsung person in our distilling community, but such a badass. And I know she's been a big part of your work there. Um, is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story because maybe you've had this experience. I had it once in Mills, but I, my, my mentor in the Mills was an Englishman named Derek Ogden, who's now 89 years old. And he's a master millwright who builds mills. And his young apprentice 
and I were on a project and they weren't getting along and I was in the middle. <laughs> that, that's always fun. Um, but Dave and Lisa overlapped by a few months. Uh, and so there were some times like any distiller's discussion where they didn't see uh, the path forward on something we were doing the same way. And so there I was in the middle again. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about distillers is we're super chill. We're not opinionated and we're really, really just like easy about our ideas. <laughs> That's so true. And we're just a mellow bunch of chill out people. We're not uptight or controlling at all. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I was in the middle and it was some decisions about how we were going to proceed the next day as we we're riding down. I think what happened was we did one day per Lisa's way and then and the other day per Dave's. And uh, that's how we, you know, ironed it out that time. But, but Dave in 2017, he was, you know, so busy with so many projects that he, he was phasing out and told me he was, you know, got a, business was picking up and he was going to, you know, come when he could, but really couldn't do as much as he used to. And Lisa, had helped us initially in 2016. Uh, and so she was, you know, had really been so helpful and she helped rewrite some of our, our fermentation protocol. And so we've learned a ton from her and she continues to come and help us. Although she's really busy too with Widow Jane, but you know, we're very fortunate to have her and have had Dave. And then you came for rum um, and then others along the way, like Ted Huber's helped us over the years with some brandy. Um, Thomas McKenzie on occasion in the early years uh, helped us make some apple and peach brandy. So that's the benefit to us. We get to work to so, so many great people and we get to pick their brains and learn as much as possible. And everyone there enjoys the experience. You know, everybody loves the, the building and the people. So, oh, but, yeah. but yeah, you know, I, I do think Lisa's unsung in many ways and uh, you know, she's uh, just a great teacher. So she is, she's got that gentle, gentle guiding teaching nature. I always joke that her and I need a reality show where we have like an old pickup and we drive across the country, like fixing people's distilling issues. They're like, we're having trouble with this fermentation. And I'm kind of the hothead, fiery young upstart. And she's like the wise and mellow, like goddess guide. And we just kind of have our personalities and it's like a badass show. So well, that'd be a great show. <laughs> Put you both in an old Ford pickup and across the country you go. You yeah, know? I'm in it for the pickup. Like, I, I'm totally one of those truck girls. Like, my poor husband, I'm like, we need a scout. We need a this. We need, a, like, let's get a million old trucks. Um, so I'm in it for the truck. But, yes, I think we would have a really, really, really great time. And I just love her energy, man. Yeah, and she's doing great work, as you know. And uh, so, yeah, we, we've benefited from that because, frankly, you know, we, we've gotten better at it. Uh, but I think that uh, the last several years where I can see the improvement and we have to, you know, again, thank her for guiding us along in the right direction. Uh, yeah, she's such a good guide. And then, you know, along the way, we've also learned, you talked earlier about the fires, the wood fires. We've learned to run stills better. Um, we just really have learned how to feed the fires properly, which is in the early days, we thought, you know, just chuck the wood under there like any fire but it's you know you as you said you work with wood fire you bake you do different things it's really where you lay the wood in the size of the wood and how you mind your fire makes a difference in what comes off the still and um, so over the time the last few years we've just gotten better and better at that and I think I mentioned to you that the guy that really helped us with that was a, a buddy of mine who an Englishman another Englishman who just retired last year from uh, the head of the 
the food waste for the royal palaces. Oh, wow. And Mark Meltonville is his name. You got to meet him sometime. He's a character, um, but he's a, a genius researcher and, and incredible food waste historian. And he had done, he, re, he basically ran the kitchens at Hampton Court Palace, which is, was Henry VIII's famous palace. Yeah. These are, these are 1500s kitchens that still survive. Oh, and so he did the program there and he came over a few times and the first or second time, because you know, you guys are causing temperature spikes under the stills by the way you're feeding the wood in there. And I'm like, oh, and I said, well, show me what you mean. <laughs> he, he taught us how to feed those stills right. And it's really made a difference. So I got to credit Mark for that. That's uh, amazing. But, you know, and, and he's also fun to be around because that, you know, I, I I'm an Anglophile. And, you know, the sense of humor just kills me. Like one time he was, <laughs> we'd already malted these two fermenters so they weren't real thick, but he's using two mash rakes and rolling them down to drop temperature. And, and I can't do the accent, so I won't attempt it. But he says, Steve, after 15 to 20 years of turning spits and rowing mash, how come I have uh, arms like a dead frog? <laughs> I don't know, Mark. Um, but, but he's a guy that where he'll say like 100 hilarious things in a day. And I, I get home, I'm tired. I can't remember him. And I'm like, I wish I'd taped that guy. Because it's just, uh, you know, if you've been around that British wit and that sardonic type wit, he's that man. And... Uh, like one time I said to him, you know, Mark, you could really, with that accent, you could really insult me. And I, I really wouldn't probably even notice it. And he goes, no, Steve, if I insulted you, you would notice it. And, <laughs> uh, so, but, you know, with COVID, you know, I talked to him on the phone. You know, we hope next year, if things are better, he can come back again because he loves working with us. But right now, as you know, travel for everybody's pretty restricted. And, and but we look forward to that reunion, you know, getting him back and, and, uh, you know, hopefully you back one day uh, yeah. to help us with something else. Yeah, that would be amazing. I would absolutely love it. I loved, I absolutely loved every moment I had there. I learned so much about historic distilling. I learned more about rum. Um, I think, you know, doing that type of fermentation and kind of coaching you through it before I arrived was really fun. Cause it's like, well, I think my, like I've never actually fermented in a sideways wooden barrel in the limestone house in the middle of winter. But my, <laughs> my training says, and I was like, oh, whew, it worked out. Like, like that was a relief for me. Um, that's something Dave had shared with me before he, uh, so I met him after Makers, but before Whistlepig. Um, and I remember him being like, the day you can give someone directions over the phone and it works, that's a good day. And I was like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, goal achieved. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that what was interesting, too, was uh, that the collaboration of the Rum Project at Mount Vernon. Just maybe we should go into a little bit of how that came to pass. Yeah, absolutely. The, the publishing and the let's, let's do it all. Do it up. Yeah, yeah so um, as you mentioned earlier, you know, Mount Vernon's distillery in the 18th century was whiskey. You know, there was many rum distilleries in the 18th century, as we both know, but Washington never made rum there. But in 2018, our development office, which is our fundraising office for Mount Vernon, Joe Bondi, who's our, our VP there, he's great. He, he came to me and he said, can you guys make rum? And I said, well, why would we make rum in the whiskey distillery? And he said, well, we're going to republish Washington's Barbados diaries, which he wrote when he was 19. And it was his only trip outside North America. 
and he went to Barbados with his older half-brother, Lawrence. And it was a business trip, but Lawrence also had tuberculosis. And they thought the Caribbean air, as you know, medicine in that time, they didn't know nearly what we know today, obviously, but they felt it might help his health. So Washington is able to journey across the seas, uh, experience another culture, the rum and, and the sugarcane culture and the Caribbean. And, and he talked about wildlife and, and, and sea creatures that he saw while they were traveling, just all this exposure. And so they re he kept a diary, which we republished, and they wanted us to make rum uh, for some donors and a little bit of retail sales to go along with it. So uh, I said, yeah, I think we can, but let me, let me call Lisa. So I called Lisa Wicker. And we talked for about 10 minutes and like right after that, she goes, you got to call Maggie. Let's, let's, uh, let's get Maggie Campbell down here too. So, you know, so she kind of opened that door for you and I had met you. So it was kind of really cool. I'm like, this could be really cool. You know, so ba basically you two ladies guided the ship to help produce this first ever George Washington Rome. And, and, and it was sad you two didn't overlap exactly because you're busy. She's busy. So I think you guys missed each other about, by a few hours, right? I mean, yeah, you, yeah. I think I was on my way out, and she was flying in, and I was like, maybe our flight will get delayed. <laughs> yeah, but but you had written a protocol, and, and and she helped with us as well, tweaking this and that. Because as you remember, it's eleven degrees in the building. Oh, and uh, oh, I remember. <laughs> yeah, hard to forget. Well, well, people say it must be warm in here with these fires. The fires are in a brick firebox. It's when it's eleven degrees in that building, you feel every bit of it. And well, and the walls are like radiating ice cold because they're thick, like yeah. are, they're limestone, right? Yeah, it's a strata of stone. I, I think it's a limestone base. It's a, and, and Washington had a quarry on his property. So the original building was built from his quarry, but we went during the restoration and got a, a similar strata stone from another location cool. you know, to be as accurate as possible. But yeah, they're three feet thick. Yeah, they're just holding the cold in their bones and like you yeah the floor is ice cold the walls are ice cold and like you said those bricked in fireplaces they're sending all their heat up into those stills so i remember warming myself in front of the stills a lot but i was wearing like thermals and carhartts and insulated carhartts and i was like i got back to the room and i was thinking about you know the enslaved men who ran that distillery and here i am in like great workwear with a full stomach sleeping in a great bed and I can't even mm -hmm. imagine the labor because um, it was just, it was intense. I don't know. I'm sure I've been colder in my life before, but I have not been that cold in my adult life. I was like, even, I need to just stand in a burning hot shower to like get warm again. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised even in New England weather. huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. But, uh, but yeah, the cobblestone floor where the fermenter sit, I mean, that's super cold. So what was happening, and again, my memory's foggy about the timing of you and Lisa, but I contacted Lisa because all the fermenters, you know, were slowing down, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, because of the cold. And, uh, and she, she's, I like the way she thinks out of the box. She said, you're not going to believe me, but go to the pet store and buy all the aquarium heaters you can buy. Yeah. <laughs> and so we, those, those wooden lids have handles on them. We flipped the lids upside down, hung the aquarium heaters in there to keep them some warmth going. And then we set up basically uh, around, we ran our boiler. It's an open, it's like a more of a bathtub. It's not an enclosed boiler. So it's, it's a big 210 gallon copper boiler that's open. And we, we took zip ties and plastic tarps and made a tent around the mash floor. And I totally ran, remember that. <laughs> ran the boiler. So we're all in there like a big cocoon, you know? Remember that standing around there? 
with your it's husband. It's all steamy and like a delightful, like a little, uh, like a little like sweat sort of insulated thing. Yeah, it was I amazing. guess it was our sweat lodge for a few yeah. days. And then, and then we got some space heaters. So what would happen each night is one of either me or one of my other guys would stay till about 12 or 1 a.m., keep everything running, and then they would unplug everything and turn the boiler off, and, and then someone would arrive on site at 5.30 or 6 a.m. and plug it all back in. And again, people would say, well, that's not 18th century. Well, my standard phrase is Washington would be very pleased with the ingenuity we applied to solve a problem because, you know, I mean, that's uh, the bottom line is we had to make it work and we did. And then they, you know, I, they took off, they kept rolling. And, and I don't think it was uh, perfection, but I think we made it happen. Yeah. And then, exactly. of course, once they were done, we were able to move on and get them through the stills, which, you know, then, then we knew we were going the right path, I think. There was, <laughs> there was a day or two there in the middle when you weren't there and Lisa wasn't there where I was having, you know, being so much less experienced than you and her. I was a bit anxious about it, um, yeah. you know, because the last thing I wanted to report was, well, how did the rum go? Well, <laughs> turns out it didn't work out. Oh, yeah. believe me. I know that fear well. <laughs> yeah. but, but thankfully we, we, we got it there. And I think it's, it's a neat marriage of some, you know, obviously new techniques, the yeast that we selected. Um, you helped us with the, the one source for that high grade molasses, which made a big difference, which I thank you for. And, uh, and then once we got through that fermentation stage, I felt like, you know, in my heart, I thought this is going to work. We're going to, then it becomes just how do we pull it off the stills and how much, how many proof gallons were we going to end up with? Yeah. Um, and I loved that whole, like you said, you would collect in a jar, you would take it over to the counting table. It would be counted and recorded for the records and then put in its separate little final containment sort of container. Yeah. Um, and that felt very like community as well, which I kind of loved. Like it was a constant check-in, check-up. How's it going? It was, it was really, it was really nice to have that. Yeah. And working in that, the room, you know, is, I mean, it's fairly big, but it is tight quarters. So that's sort of, you feel the teamwork in there. Oh yeah. You're always bumping up against people and sharing space. And it was really fun and really nice. And then, and then of course we then put everything, you know, cause we are, in a sense, working, walking in two worlds, we do have stainless steel tanks that we use for unaged spirit. Um, yeah. so, so we went through that and collected it all, doubled it, and then we had to make those decisions like anybody does or if you make an unaged spirit that what's going to go that direction and what are we going to barrel? Yeah. And so that was, that was fun. And, and again, for me, not being um, knowledgeable about rum like you, you know, I learned a lot. Um, and I'd, I'd like to do it again. You know, that's what keeps coming up as we've just released the, t the 28 month old, you know, oak cast age rum just October 1st. And so it kind of is the culmination of, of the whole project this year, which is really neat to reflect about. And yeah. it makes me want to look down the road when times are better that maybe we can make another stab at it and do it when it's not 11 degrees. <laughs> I think we could totally make a stab at it and do something amazing and get even more yields and more flavor. And like you said, every time you learn something new about how to do it, I think we could do something really special. And, and you guys auctioned off one of those bottles uh, recently, right? Yeah, we had a, a, you know, a very small event because of conditions, but up, up by the mansion of some of our, our closest donors. And we did a silent auction and we had a set of the unaged from and the aged rum together, matching numbers. And 
there was the silent bidding and someone paid nearly five grand for those two bottles. Which is so cool. That's and, so great that it could help. And right now, as you probably know, like everybody is hurting, uh, you know, normally Mount Vernon gets a million visitors a year, 1.1 million, which is astounding. We're the, really the biggest house museum that's visited in the country. And, you know, being closed all those months from spring all the way through June, and then also people in groups just not coming, you know, we get a lot of buses, people aren't going places. So you can imagine our, our revenue through the gate is, is quite impacted. Yeah. Which is impacted, you know, and it's nothing, not everybody, everybody's going through it. You know, we all are, are in it. But, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, there's been some cutbacks and some positions eliminated, like you have to try to think about the long-term future. And so anything we can do to raise money has been beneficial. So, you know, it's that rum that we worked on together did help, is helping. So. Well, that's great. That's always great to hear. And it's just so nice. I felt so lucky to be included. I felt so privileged to be there and to, to be able to work in and around and with your team and, and learn from them and just kind of see it all come together. It was so, it was just really moving and, and really special and something I absolutely cherish. I remember getting that email and like jumping up and down. I think maybe you sent me a Facebook message and I was like, oh my God, Pete, Mount Vernon reached out <laughs> because it had always been on my radar as something really special. And it just felt really cool to even be a teeny tiny part of, of helping bring that along and, and uh, getting to have a hand in kind of this big community project. So um, and getting to meet some of your donors. That was really lovely as well. The people who just really believe in it. That was special. Yeah, those were the folks that helped pay for getting the molasses and all the ingredients and the staff time to make it happen. So yeah, that was a fun day when you were able to chat with them and and they really enjoyed it because, you know, um, hearing from you and your your knowledge of rum and, and they, you know, I saw some of them at that fundraiser and they they still talked about all that. Oh, good. And it's, you know, it's, you know, something special, but when someone else comes in and sees how special it is, like, it's great to share that. And I could really see what you guys were doing was so special. Um, and hopefully, you know, let them know that I see that what they're supporting is, is really something, you know, there's no other distilling experience like it, you know, especially in continental North America. Um, but I think period, I, th I think it's really one of a kind um, in its own way. And it's, it's really special that you guys have that living history while also making badass spirits, which is so cool. That peach brandy. Oh yeah. I like dream of it. <laughs> uh, coming from you, it means a lot, you know, because we're still in so many ways. I look at myself as so much to learn. And so when someone comes in and tastes something we've made and has experience, you know, it means a lot to us. It really does. Cause uh, you know, like I said, in the early years, we were plowing along as best we could. And we've, we've kind of, you know, we're the 11 year mark in and making production runs. And I feel like the best is yet to come. I mean, we have, we're also switching now from, you know, we still do some 25 gallon barrels, but I've got a lot of 53 gallon barrels laid down now. And, um, and they're, you know, for the rye whiskey and some brandy. And, you know, I, I think that I can't wait to see what those are going to be like. I mean, I taste them every so often as we do, but I just look forward to releasing some of that whiskey here in the next couple of years. Yeah, it's going to be really, really special. And 
and we keep our bottle of the unaged rum. It's up in our tasting room for, you know, if and when the day comes that we're able to all share those spaces again. Uh, anyone who visits Privateer, look for it behind the bar. It's up on one of our display shelves, top shelf right side. Um, and it's really just something we cherish and we're so happy to, to be a part of that. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And I've got the matching number bottle of the oak cast aged one here at my house for you. So oh. we'll get that to you at some point so you can have bookends up there. That'd be amazing when it's safe because I know that that the glass bottle it's in is so beautiful. I'm like, I would be worried to ship it. <laughs> oh, I know. I don't. I tell people don't ship it. Uh, and, and also, you know, God forbid, you know, there's none of those left the unaged. So, yeah. Know. I might have one lab bottle that I have, you know, but um, it's kind of like, uh, well, they become <laughs> little gems you don't want to lose. Yeah, absolutely. A little piece of history. So we love it. Thank you so much for also coming on the podcast and making time in this wild time uh, to sit and speak with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's great to reminisce with you and just talk about, you know, history and the various projects and, you know, the time to, you know, give people a little look into what we do at George Washington Distillery. So. I just say when times get better, um, keep an eye out next year. If things are better for everybody, please come visit us. The, the estate's open every day of the year. The distillery and mill are open usually April 1st through October 31st for tours. So, uh, you know, mountvernon.org is a great website. You can read more. Uh, it's, it's very in-depth in a lot of the sections about the history of Mount Vernon. So, you know, while you're home with COVID, dig into it a little bit. And, uh, and there's even George Washington's papers you can access through there. Yeah, yeah. The online portal is amazing. And your photos of the estate, it's so beautiful. It's so like, it's just really peaceful um, when you're there. So yeah, when the time comes and you need a peaceful escape, guys, I highly, highly recommend it. It's a really, really distinct experience. And even now we had a few more weeks for Christmas time, but you know, we are open. The grounds are open. So if you're in the DC area, it's a nice place to come walk around and experience it. Yeah, yeah, I know you guys are doing all sorts of great stuff with outdoor tents and um, sort of seminars and kind of cool stuff going on and absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Um, I really, really appreciate it. And yeah, stay safe and we'll keep sending each other music, old YouTube videos and cool stuff. And Sounds good. And we'll make it through till we can distill again. <laughs> yeah, it will get better. It doesn't seem like it now, but things will get better. So yeah. We'll make it through. But thanks for chatting with me. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Cheers and stay safe. You too. Thanks, Maggie. Bye. Thank you for spending your time with us today. I really hope you enjoyed my chat with Steve Bayshore about all things making the George Washington rum um, and historical reenactment and all of those amazing details. We've got more technical and detailed podcasts coming up for you. You can find us at Privateer Rum on Instagram, Privateer Rum on Facebook, and my personal handle is at Half Pint Maggie. Please join us next time. Cheers and thanks.